and welcome to the Dicer Screaming Podcast. Oh, oh yeah, spooky season yeah. in full swing. <laughs> All right, yeah, I'm Randy. I am confirmed as Mike. Oh, now confirmed as Mike. All right, not allegedly Mike. No, they they had proof. Good. There was grainy video evidence on the internet, and so I have been forced to relent and admit that I am in fact Mike. All right. Yeah. So hey, uh, it's spooky season, and here we are. Dice of Screaming going to be covering at you with some more spooky season coverage, talking about some of the spooky monsters. And we've done this a couple times before. We like to do it every season, but rather than just uh, trot out a few old tropes. We're going to delve a little deeper this time to the specifics. Yeah, in our earlier uh, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Mr. Bowie. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our earlier episodes, I, I feel like our emphasis was on the classics. You know, we, we looked at the most famous monsters of all time, and that was great. It was a great topic to cover, but we've done it. So now we're going to go on a little more of a exploratory deep dive out into the fringes to, you know, maybe take a look at some of the less appreciated monsters out there that are in a similar vein and are great for any campaign setting where you want to bring in the spooky monsters. But we'll get we'll get to that. Right. So we're going to talk a little bit about one of the bigger categories, which is the spectral haunt the ghost the poltergeist and of course ghost the apparition yes Uh, yeah there's a variety of less well-known you know less often used monsters that i i think dms overlook uh, right i think are great fun all right and so we're just going to talk about the ghost and some of its um antecedents and specifically we're going to be talking from the classical era of D&D, but also into the more modern era of 5th edition and Pathfinder. So, when we talk about things like ghosts, the 1st edition ghost was a heck of an encounter. Oh, yeah. Look, it was one of the worst. Uh, and it had the wonderful sensibility that came of DMs in that era and creators in that era wanting to put the players really through the ringer uh, at a time when, you know, the, the bestiary was a little thinner in those days. Uh, and so the first appearances of the ghost is undead uh, featured the capacity to rapid age. Yes, and this was a big... <laughs> it made a, a transformative experience for the player character. Their characters sometimes started as a... in their early 20s and ended up in their late 40s. If Things didn't go well. well. And that was if they were lucky. Right. Okay. I mean, it could easily, you know, you, you got your 22-year-old fighter and he's, you know, comes out of that ghost encounter 62. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, yeah. Plate mail or leather armor? Depends. Uh, oh, <laughs> okay. I see what you did there. Yes. Uh, no, it, it was frightening. At the point of, you know, the creation of that monster like so many of the undead examples we're going to be covering tonight, is that it was intended to terrify players. It was meant to be not just spooky ghost. Oh, you know, here's an episode of uh, uh, Scooby-Doo where, like, 
Yeah, they get to yank the mask off later. <laughs> Old man Withers. Oh yeah. Okay. Nice read, Velma. Mm. Yeah, just no. Uh, this was meant to make players literally pucker up and just clench like, <gasps> oh crap, a ghost. <laughs> Run. Go 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 ghost. Exactly. And then the ancillary ones, the Spectre, the Wraith. Yeah. Which the Wraith was also supposed to encompass, like the Lord of the Rings Wraith, but didn't do it so well. Yeah, the nebulous description won because they, they did want to distance themselves from classic Tolkien-esque material. Right. Uh, the Wraith wound up being a bit more of an ill-defined, amorphous creature, unlike the White, which, you know, the true Barrow White, uh, the level-draining dead there in the uh, burial mound or, like, in a crypt or tomb... Uh, laid there aside all of its treasures from life, but totally evil and without remorse, hungering to steal life from those who approached. Yeah, greedy and hateful. Yeah, malice defines the white. Uh, and in many respects, uh, the wraith as well. You know, there is a malevolent hunger to steal away from the living that which, you know, they no longer possess. Yeah, and then you add from the fiend folio the apparition. Which and, equally spooky. Yeah. And you know, more of the incorporeal undead, uh, we got the haunt and even the poltergeist. Uh haunt from the uh second edition or Monster Manual two, excuse me. Yeah, the Monster Manual two gave us the poltergeist. Which Or uh, no, I was in the fiend folio. Oh, I I may have it mixed up with uh, one of the other ones that was featured in, like, A2, the Slaver Stockade. Yep. Uh, where the, you know, haunting undead in that place, you know, it's the, the one that makes things go bump. Uh, but Yeah, the restless dead, the spirit lives on. And the, the inclusion of the poltergeist was a great... Yeah, and toning that down from the ghost made it uh, more applicable to having a spectral kind of encounter that was unnerving, but not necessarily one that was going to change your character completely from uh, in its prime to middle-aged. Yeah. Creating a scenario where the players are challenged, uh, rattled unnerved uh, and in some cases exhausted or diminished uh, but not having that potential for like oh man if I run this encounter I may be down a couple players next week yeah you know even 30 years ago the game was looking for ways to thread that needle you know like how can we create threats that are modest and this was before the era of scaled encounters where you right. could dial the tension up by dialing up the strength of the monster, or dial it back. Uh, you know, like, okay, we've got the toughest frickin' goblin in the world, or the world's wussiest dragon. You know, just, you could do anything now. But then, there was a search for, okay, I'm gonna need something that's in between. Uh, not quite ready to throw a wraith at them, but, you know, there's well, no way you know, I'm going to scare Poltergeist causes you to run away in fear. Yeah, you know, like, I'm, I'm not ready to, like, just throw another batch of skeletons at them. They'll just wade through them. You want that middle ground. Yeah, and last week we covered the zombie, and we went through and talked about its stats, and 
Of course, it's long-term effects in the game world outside of just monster movies, but then, of course, we've re-narrated it back into the monster movie, which is completely uh, applicable to the season and what we were going for with that episode. So this one, we're going to take a little bit more look, deeper look at the game effects. So when we talk about the spectral monsters and incorporeal creatures uh, throughout the years, I think the ghost is the one that's evolved the most with now a template, and it's no longer just a hateful, lawful, evil creature, although that still is its default template, but you could have a lawful good ghost of a paladin or a priest who was has failed or stymied some way and now seeks to inhabit a corporeal body to complete its quest so it can be freed. Yeah, some may remember some early editions uh, material that included uh, specific monsters. I believe the Haunt was one of the ones that could have an alternate alignment. Yes. Uh, and, you know, its goal was nebulous. You know, the, the DM would choose what was the circumstances of its death, what does it desire, what can the players do to accommodate the haunt, uh, if communication can be established, but it had the power to ultimately wind up possessing a player character, uh, if necessary. So there was obviously a bone of contention here. You know, like, it, if the haunt is not a nice person, it goes right for the, I'm going to just, you know, work your stats down until I can take you over and ride you around like a puppet. Or, maybe it was good sourced. So, yeah, it was a little tougher to do that back then. The creation of an ghost template that allowed the DM to fudge and work their way around and, like, fit the monster to the story. Huge step forward. I loved it. Yeah, and as we're talking about the spooky season, uh, we're going to dwell a little bit on the undead, but we're also going to go to some more supernatural critters. And before we do that, though, speaking of the supernatural... What does the future portend for us? Let us consult the Oracle. Ah, the Ornithomancer. Yes. Uh, uh, observing the patterns of the birds as they wing across the fall sky. Uh, I, have, I have gathered that next week, our topic, very suitably, will be Kolchak, the Night Stalker. Oh, all right. So we'll be doing another one. Um... Or were we going to be doing... Wait, wait, there is a strange stirring in the air. Something, a raven just flew by. Should we not do the Return to Ravenloft? The Curse of Strahd, 5th edition? Ooh, we report, you decide. Um, <laughs> man, 5th E Ravenloft. You know, it is out and available now and has been for a while. Uh, this would be a nice voyage into the 5E zone, I think. Yeah. All right, why don't we pull the trigger? Well, maybe we'll use Coljack as a month closer, because, frankly, that one is... It's, honestly, one of the starting points at which, like, popular media started to develop the horror trend in television. Uh, and, you know, you can see the lineage in the X-Files and other shows, but Coljack came first. Got yeah. there firstest with the mostest and made a big dent. So, yeah, it'll get its time, but I kind of want to do Ravenloft, too. All right, well, let's do it. So you heard it here, folks. Yeah, we waffle a little bit, but I still think it's a good idea. A 5E Ravenloft. Yeah, so we'll be doing a review and overview, and, of course, homaging the original, which we have in a previous podcast, but we will just touch on it just briefly to bespeak about our love for this very 
old and treasured classic. Yeah, we'll have to examine very specifically some of the nuanced differences in the approach for the new set. You know, the, the differences of setting that have, um, you know, become a facet of people's new Ravenloft experience, which so glad that people are having a Ravenloft experience because man does not count Strahd make one of the great villainous opponents of all time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, there is scarcely a long-term gamer around that has not, uh, you know, thrown down the gauntlet of challenge at count Strahd von Zarovich. All right. So yeah, getting back into our overview about scary monsters of the spooky season, with no bridges washed out, though. <sighs> but we will have to stay the night, or at least till the end of this podcast, so we appreciate it if you do. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, getting back to some of the other things uh, that go bump in the night, or uh, <clears throat> go bump on the die six and cause wandering damage, undead and supernatural creatures abound in our imaginations in this season. So one of the great ones that often gets overlooked in the rush for just stocking your dungeon or your encounters full of dead guys who still should be laying in the ground is the otherworldly creature that has crept in. And this is the supernatural horror of demons and possibly devils. And they have a different type of feel to them. Their horror is more of that their realization of existentialistic, uh, the conflict of good and evil in the outer planes and from beyond. Well, they represent genuine underworld forces filled with a contempt and loathing for humankind and a malicious bent where, you know, like, they're here to corrupt, to corrode, to diminish, to destroy. It is an absolutely oppositional relationship Except, you know, in the case of the Devils, you know, there, there might be a little temptation up front, but the ultimate goal is the dissolution or destruction of mortals. And that they make classic enemies for exactly that reason. We're not going to cover all of them in, in detail. Oh, yeah, there's so many of them throughout the various editions of the game. Oh. That that you would go dizzy just trying to get it. So uh, I mean, we're just a couple gonna... of episodes from there, right? You know, you'd have to break it down to each individual category. Like, yeah, let's cover just the demons, and we might be able to gloss over enough to cover most of it in a single episode. But we we could never lump it all together. And so I would vote for, as far as a supernatural horror, the Bodak. Oh, all right. For inclusion in this episode of like super freaky, super freaky, Demonic, super yep. scary creatures. As an underworld creature, the Bodak, uh, I believe, first appearance, Lost Caverns of Sacanth. Yeah, and also in Monster Manual 2, and also that uh, little uh, booklet in Lost Caverns of Sojacanthus. Yeah, as, the, as uh, uh, Yeah, I believe that was. Yeah, S4. Um, Right, it's there. Basically, it's a human who died in the Abyss and is now part of the Demonic Legions. Its gaze causes death, and of course, it uh, when it dies, it releases its demonic fury <laughs> in an explosion. Oh, at, for starters, the death gaze. Okay, one of the things that made the Bodak so immensely terrifying was, at the time, if you were not familiar with it, but... Like, maybe you had some, you know, powerful, good characters in the mix, and they recognize an evil underworld creature when they see one. 
but they don't know the type. Here's a new type. They thought they had memorized all the monster manuals and knew what the creatures did. And then here comes something new in a special booklet that only the DM has at the moment. Uh, and what do you mean? Staring at it and failing a saving throw means I die. You know, just, whoa. Yeah, and becoming a bodeg as well. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Welcome to Team Bad Guy. <laughs> the doom of many a player character. But it made it just wonderfully bone-chilling. Like, uh, once people knew what it could do, it was a terrifying encounter for players where they you, you got that clench factor. Like, oh, uh-oh. Now, another one I like to uh, roll out is another demon. It's the Nabasau mm. demon. Uh, normally sent here as some type of larval demon, demon kin that collects the souls of its slain and devoured and becomes more powerful the more it collects. So it adds itself to a cult or a small group of demonic worshippers maybe attached to a more powerful demon or demon lord. Yeah, it rapidly accumulates a trail of dead. Okay, the, the hunger for sacrifices to feed it and strengthen it is overwhelming. Uh, it's its purpose. It gets stronger the more it is fed. So finding a way to get its fix and level up. It's a big thing for this. And it's cunning and intelligent and ruthless. And more importantly, it is completely amoral and just prone to violence and carnage for its own sake. It revels in what it is and becomes stronger and eventually returns to the Abyss with the souls of those that it initially devoured. Yeah, wonderfully demonic creature that uh, makes a terrific amoral enemy. There's no redeeming factor. There's no, you know, oh, you know, we're kind of in a shade of gray here. No, this thing is all bad all the time. Yeah, in Demons and Devils, the uh, supernatural outs evil outsiders represent the palument of evil. There is very little in the way of redemption there. They yeah. are all out for no good. And they represent the ultimate incarnation of evil itself, just done for its own sake. And many times, especially with the chaotic evil ones, they have absolutely no qualms and no questions of what they are. They have completely embraced it. And so they're not really willing or... In a way, they're not free-willed. They're destined to this, and this is their destiny, but they fully accept that. Yeah, they're not empathic. They can't be reasoned with, even in most cases, in a commercial sense. The Nabasu is, you know, powerful enough to afford to be cocky. Uh, yep. you know, it, Arrogant, even, yeah. The only tools that it accepts the use of are those who will move forward its immediate agenda of getting people to feed on. Uh, that's it. That is like the entire extent of usefulness of others to the Nabasu. So, at, that's one of those boss fight encounters that is just blood chilling, you know, especially when you've built it up very slowly with the network of followers pipelining victims and Maybe the characters have been lured in by the, the tales of like Somebody wanted them to find out what happened to a missing loved one. Uh, and they have to unravel the network before they can actually fight the boss. Uh, man, love those encounters. And it, it's very reminiscent of the, uh, the cult in the first Warhammer fantasy uh, major module for 
Oh, Shadows Over Bogenhaven. Yeah. yeah. It was a demonic cult, you know, at, at the core of it. Uh, and so your, your boss fight was preventing the conjuration uh, and incorporation of a demon. Oh, yeah, or Classic. the summoning of a greater demon. So, yeah, yeah, Nabasu, fantastic choice. Yeah, that's a good one. It also has a death gaze too, and as uh, highest level power levels, but it kind of levels up, so it kind of can keep pace with the player characters, making it pretty good for inclusion. But also, just the the nature of the creature itself lends itself well to a supernatural enemy. And so you say, well, we've covered demons. What about devils? Well, I would go with the Hellcat. Now, what? good spooky Halloween story doesn't have a yammering or yowling cat with its hackles raised and just completely feral. Yeah, the Hellcat. That's the one, and it comes again from the Fiend Folio. A nice collection of weird stuff. Yeah, but uh, it has some good gems in it, too. And the Hellcat represents just a feral beast from the Hells, the Nine Hells, presumably, and it, you know, its scream causes fear and all sorts of nastiness and of course much in cat like nature it's a ferocious opponent in the when cornered oh. <laughs> yeah willing to skirt around the edges normally but hey you know backed into a corner with nowhere else to go it's going through you <laughs> now also alluding to the hounds of baskerville five the hellhound its, itself five of its six ends are pointy yeah the, uh, but the hound of the baskervilles and oh. the hellhound itself is a is an ancient metaphor but the hellhound being pursued are pursuing the souls of the damned throughout the netherworlds, hounding them relentlessly, being driven before them, reminiscent of some of the times of the uh, wild hunt itself. Now in D&D, they became incorporated more as like the the minions slash guard dogs of, you know, the hellish host. Uh, they, they were useful tools, not especially bright, but uh, wonderfully vicious. Yep, and relentless, and... So those are other supernatural creatures that may not be the stars of the show, but definitely can add to the ambiance. Yeah, I mean, they're setting appropriate, especially when you have underworld connections involved in the plot. Uh, and then, you know, they, as creatures, are not so much the significant threat themselves. Like, even a small pack of hellhounds is still reasonably easy to deal with for an experienced party of adventurers mm -hmm. with some fair levels and equipment, uh, you know, some good spells at their disposal, but used as an augmentation for an existing network of opponents, uh, you know, having them uh, in the company of the boss fight uh, when you're looking for that highly dramatic opponent who has allies in the underworld, throw in some hellhounds. Why wouldn't you? I mean, they're, they're a wonderful distraction, and they can definitely whittle away at the party's attention, keeping them from focusing absolutely on your boss uh, and eliminating them in, like, round two, which, you know, I have learned to throw these distractions in for exactly that reason. You, you've got to keep all the party members busy, or they will concentrate their fire on the worst opponent instantly and annihilate him, especially if you have smart players. The worst kind. Mm. No, I'm kidding. I'm yeah, kidding. squash them before they get too wild. <laughs> um, so let's talk about another supernatural creature that comes out of folklore and psychological horror: the night hag. Oh, you know, yeah, writing so glad you. We got to cover this one because this is one we did not. You know, like these these are creatures we didn't get a chance to give real coverage to in one, one of our more classic 
famous monster episodes. Night Hag. Literally right out of legend. And also out of psychology. You know, the idea of the night hag sitting on your chest and suffocating you and you know, draining your soul out. To Thus take... the term, when you looked very down and exhausted and wore out, hag-ridden. That mm-hmm. is where the term comes from. That, like, a night hag has been tearing at you and ruining your sleep, and therefore you wake up exhausted and miserable. Thus the term hag-ridden. Yep, and they also have the ability to... In- mind control and influence you as well as take over your body and uh, a whole bunch of loss of will body horror and it's out of classic of nightmare and ghost stories but it has its antecedents and part of our psychology as well many people experience night terrors from sleep disorders and other such things sleep paralysis you know has been attributed to night hags um, and even in you know film and video and things like that Mm -hmm. It's been referred back to as like the being victim to supernatural forces. Uh, it's still entrenched in us that like, oh, this isn't just a little minor pathway disconnect between the part of the brain that goes deep into REM sleep and stays that way. Uh, you know, sometimes that pathway isn't working quite right and you become conscious uh, while your body is still asleep. And it takes a while to kick the body back into gear and connect those pathways so that you can have control over your, you know, waking mind and body at the same time. Uh, I had sleep paralysis when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did, I did some research on that subject years ago. I, was, I wondered, why the heck does that happen? Uh, and that, that pathway of the mind, who could have studied these things? You know, they didn't have EKG machines and yeah, stuff sleep like that studies. 500 years ago. Uh, they just had these experiences just like we do now. And this wonderful, spooky mythology built up around the issue. And so a monster came out of it, and also the nightmare. Oh, the literal embodiment of a flaming, hooved, the fiery The choice in hell. Yep. And takes you for a wild ride through the astral, into the ethereal, and in eventually the lower planes, showing you all the horrors that awaited you. <laughs> oh man uh, nightmares make the best dramatic steeds and remember what I said about the hellhound mm-hmm. uh, they are the perfect augmentation like if it's not going to be purely indoors uh, like you know inside a fortified castle in a nice room you're like okay maybe you can't have a steed in there but you can have the hellhounds if it's an outdoor setting or a very large cavern complex with like the the evil boss fight about to happen. (sighs) A nightmare is a very powerful enemy, much stronger uh, than, for instance, the Hellhounds. Yeah, it's a multiplier for a boss to be riding upon. Or literally any creature itself uh, can be aided by it. He's riding a weapon. (laughs) Welcome to, you know, multiple attacks around against... You, uh, not just like he hit me twice with his sword. No, he's also riding a just coiled spring of hate uh, that is here to trample you with burning hooves. And flame, so fear, much, and fire. Yep. So much wind. A smoke. Excuse me. So, yeah, the uh, the nightmare is another one that kind of gets glossed aside. Is that it can just be oh, it's just a flying horse with flaming hooves. Okay, yeah, you're right. But also has a much more sinister application that 
Once you get on its back, it will take you for a ride through the plains. <laughs> yep. Yeah, now, rare is it that a player will do anything that stupid now. But back in the day, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Yeah, you could convince a lot of people to take a ride. <laughs> yeah, well, and let's face it, okay? I mean, if you've listened to a lot of metal albums, uh, and then you played D&D &D for the first time in, like, the, the late 70s, and somebody tells you that, like, all right, there's a floating horse with burning fiery hooves, and it's all black, and its eyes are like burning coals, and, you know, it, it snorts smoke, and you're like, dude, this is so metal, I'm going to ride that, you know, and, well, hey, they included a little surprise for anybody who wanted to do that. People are hip to it now. So no, don't do that. That's going to be bad. You're not. Yeah. It doesn't end well. This, 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 this does not go in your favor. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> Didn't end well. Oh, man. Yeah, so, you know, possession, um, being taken for a ride to the astral and ethereal planes. Yeah, these are things that people attributed to supernatural occurrences and gave a sort of monster to give a name to the terrors that they're experiencing, and they crept into the game as well. But they also fit into the obvious of supernatural parts. Now, the next thing is about demons and devils is almost gets overlooked by a lot of DMs is their possession ability. Now, we've all heard or at least seen the Exorcist movie, but you know a lot of demons, especially the major ones, have a direct possession ability. That's what they do. Yeah, this was the... It, it brings us back to the player agency issue just for a moment. Uh, the spooky value of like stripping a player of their ability to make decisions as that character. That like their self-will is at risk. And that is frightening. And obviously, if you have players at your table who are comfortable with that, by all means, go ahead. It's a tool in the toolbox. Uh, but, it, you know, just giving a little nod back to our original Session Zero discussions and player agency discussions. Mm -hmm. If you have a player that has clearly explained that they are not okay with that, you may wish to exercise the greatest possible discretion in how and when you use these abilities for these monsters. And maybe uh, restricting to the use of an NPC. Yeah. The possession of an NPC, especially in the in classical trope. Like you know, having the DM run a couple of NPCs that are adjacent to the party makes you know, makes them available foils for you to use that power on. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of times, like, well, you had a character like Superman who was pretty much invulnerable to everything. He wasn't placed in peril. It was Lois Lane, the people around him, or Jimmy Olsen. Yeah, if he's turned against them. You know, they're placed in peril, and he has to go rescue them. That's pretty much the hook for the story so that's one way of looking at how possession can be uh, worked into a campaign i think it has a certain amount of caution that it should be just not willy-nilly entered into because everybody would like hey what do you mean my player is just not able to do anything well he's, you remember that saving throw you failed a while ago <laughs> oh yeah yeah i want to touch that uh, chalice and something spoke in my mind yeah well it's uh, now exercising if that failed save. Yeah, you are the Mercedes, and it is in the driver's seat. And it's a Gleb Zero. It's a Sumerian demon, so <laughs> it's going to do some strange stuff. Like what? Um, it's going to get up and hold, make you stand at, at the top of the tallest building in town, naked, with your arms extended, in the air for about 45 minutes or until he gets tired. 
the floating tower. Yep. <laughs> you must cross the chafing chasm. <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, thank you, Korgoth. You've given us so much. Yeah, he does. He's uh, never stopped. But, point being... That not everything has to be death and destruction. It doesn't always have to be worst case scenario. But it is an important tool in the toolkit. The, you know, possession thing. Uh, it may be you know, disruptive and disturbing, but you can also exercise it upon NPCs, as Randy mentioned, and, you know, set the players on the path of rescuing somebody from being in that state. Yeah, they just can't kill them because they're going to kill the physical body, and yes, it does deny the unclean spirit its vessel in this world. It has not diminished it in any way. As a matter of fact, it's done its job. It's created grief and sorrow. And preparing an adventure where... A possessed opponent uh, has to be purged of that. You know, there are multiple side quests that can always lead mm-hmm. into read into the exorcism equipment. spell. Yeah, you know, ah, oh, crap! We need an old priest and a young priest. <laughs> uh, well, oddly specific, but I'm here to help. Yeah, okay, whatever needs to be done. Well, yeah, it's a ritual that has to be performed, and it's at a great risk. So, pits the uh, main caster against the spirit of. The unclean entity, and then it, the night hag is the ability to mind jars or magic jar as well as the ghost, as well as demons and uh, most of the major devils. Yeah, yeah, one of those fascinating tidbits that uh, pretty much all the advanced undead in the older version of D and D, sorry, not advanced undead, but the advanced underworld creatures uh, in the early versions of D and D had that power. They could all do that. And it was always bad news. Uh, the lesser ones, not so much. That was not their role. They were foot soldiers. You know, they were troopers. Uh, infernal shock troops. But all the power players had the ability to magic jar. Yeah, strange and disturbingly enough, so did most of the named devils. Yeah. <laughs> not fun. <laughs> but, I, again, it was meant to be immensely challenging and incredibly dangerous uh, with the intention being that players should not lightly undertake tasks like these. Uh, there should be enormous risks attached that discourage players from just foolishly charging in where angels fear to tread. Indeed. And yeah, you could be fighting just a uh, unnamed Type 3 demon, or you could be facing a major devil. Yeah. <laughs> One, not nearly so bad. Uh, the other, oh man, a potential like TPK-level encounter. Intentionally. Yeah, because sometimes you just didn't know it was possessing someone. All right, so yeah, getting past the supernatural, I mean, yeah, we're still talking about supernatural and the fact that the dead walk, but uh, the walking dead, which we covered exhaustively previously with the Sons of Cuss, possibly the yeah. most metal of... <laughs> <laughs> of I all mean, monsters. Ah, we, covered, we covered the classical ghoul, uh, which, yep. I mean, the elf's ability to resist paralysis is entirely owed to the fact that early encounters with ghouls went so badly for players, uh, you know, getting paralyzed, that it was, you know, they had to put in a bolt hole so that there was at least some hope of somebody in the party not winding up paralyzed. Uh, you know, we covered the, the classic ghoul, which... Right, well, I mean, we're going to cast our net a little wider for a moment, but we're going to round out our classic um, 
5th edition Pathfinder look at the D&D type monsters with a couple ones that have escaped noticed here and there. And uh, one that uh, I would like to bring up is the Coffer Corpse, which we talked about, the basic uh, bully <laughs> of <laughs> monsters um, or of the undead walking type. Literally, they, uh, they're they easy to hit. You, know, you would think them zombies, except they get up, which when um, they rise up afterwards, they have been supposedly slain, spooking the living daylights out of everyone. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, I mean, they are stranglers if they don't have a weapon. Right. They can do one or the other. But if both hands lock onto somebody, they strangle their opponent to death. Uh, really horrible. Like, yeah, just a particularly vicious personal form of undead it's not like the the vague ethereal specter touches you and drains life energy out of you or or uh the simpler effects that while they're more potent and more terrible uh, they're more direct okay you you really get the level draining fear with these other creatures but with the coffer corpse there's something wonderfully visceral about, like, bony hands are clenched around your throat, and it's literally trying to strangle the life out of you, and it will not let go. And it's, you know, animated. It has more hit points than your... This is no ordinary skeleton. Uh, this is undead, and it has it personally out for you, and wants it to suck while you die. Just like I want it's this just... to be horrible for you. Yep, and... Um... You had a specific one from Eastern European lore that uh, it was in the Peenfolio. It's possibly one of the most gruesome creatures to be included in there, even back in the day. It was like that uh, illustration Penangolin. by Russ Taylor. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, the Penangolin was a unique spin on the vampire mythos. It was like the, the alternate vampire, just a flying, severed head. Uh. <laughs> uh. You know, and pity, but for the players who yeah, a flying severed head with all the guts, intestines, and internal organs attached. Eek. Yeah, just you know, like as glop uh, hanging out of it. Okay, just incredibly gross. Uh, <laughs> now, it was you know universally female. Uh, the female vampire type undead of fearsome power and nauseating appearance. Uh, appears during the day as an attractive human female who may be of any character class. Uh, that is the female human which the Penangolin was before death. Uh, she will fight with the same combat abilities as she had when alive, will have spell use if formerly a spellcaster, thieving abilities if formerly a thief, etc. Uh, you know, standard weapons can be used in accordance with their class, all of that. Uh. Yeah, and, well, the appearance of it, besides its bizarre and very grotesque body horror, was that it was a vampire that literally flew at you with a head, screaming and shrieking bloody yeah. menace. Now and that's then at night. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, yeah. At night, I mean, it's true undead form. It's just the head and internal organs detached from the rest of the body, and then fly in search of human prey to feast on their living blood. Ew! Yeah, and if Ew. you weren't familiar with the folklore, when you pulled this out against your players, they'd look at you like, 
Is everything okay at home? <laughs> is it is everything all right? What the what the where the hell did this come from? Yeah, uh, I got it out of the paint folio. Well, we warned you about using that. <laughs> it's a very unhealthy uh, effect upon the human mind. Um, now, one of the features of it was that, like any uh, any person witnessing the scene when the penangalan head and gut detach from the body must make a saving throw against magic or die immediately because it is so horrific to observe. Yeah. Ouch. It's another one of those death saves. Okay, so, well, you know, welcome to the classic D&D. And this was, this was an upper tier level monster in that respect because the potential for auto death kill was right there in your face. Uh, yeah, you definitely didn't want to be ground zero with that. <laughs> uh now the Penanglin likes to, you know, uh, feed and then select the same po- you know, victim night after night uh, and continue to visit and feed until the victim is dead. Or it is, but hey, it's already dead, so all right, yeah, you've got to kind of overcome that. Yeah, and the caustic fluids just, oh, they did damage. Oh, yeah, the saving throws against the creature's grip on you, you know, uh, get more and more difficult to make night by night. You know, just wonderful, classic, uh, you know, vampire uh, style play. Uh, And I I gotta say, for disgusting level, uh, it's a total winner. Okay, the the yeah, if you're really into this uh, slasher gore punk. Of horror, yeah, this is this is one to put in there, and it's kind of been in several other editions. It definitely was in second edition, but third edition was like ee, and uh, yeah, it made its appearance later. But wow, just uh, what a nightmare! <laughs> and it's one of those things where you just had to when you pulled it out in your players that caused like we're gonna do a health checker. Is everything okay at home? Yeah, th- it was. Arguably, I think, one of the best ones to include in this episode because it is truly shocking and horrifying. Uh, It is completely different from the traditional vampire-style encounters, uh, and it has a lot of disturbing qualities that, if you're very good with the descriptors, uh, will, you know, just make your players have a little gross-out moment. Yeah, so if you're tired of your normal vampire... The Penanglin is definitely one to throw in. Totally recommended. Uh, it is a wonderful change of pace that allows you to still use the vampiric trope uh, without having beaten to death the overly familiar. And that's probably going to conclude for now our look at D&D classic monsters. Uh, yeah, for 5th edition, I'm not sure where the Penanglin is. I'm, I'm pretty sure somebody has a couple uh, homebrews to use it, but you can look at uh, other classical European vampire legends and pull that, pull uh, their information from that if you want to use it in your 5th edition game. Um, but now we're going to move a little bit farther afield. And we're going to leave... We're about ready to take you out of Mordor. Or uh, take you out of the Shire and bring you back into Mordor. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, I live in Mordor, so... <clears throat> um, the very air you breathe is poison. Cannot do this with a thousand men. <sighs> well, good thing that I'm just not a normal man anymore. Well, we're not sending a thousand men. We're sending two hobbits. Okay. What? So, 
We're going to go to Call of Cthulhu, and you could say, well, hey, wait, the whole freaking game is made of creepy, scary monsters of undescribable existential horror. And you would be right, but we're going to talk about two beings that inhabit Call of Cthulhu universe, specifically H.P. Lovecraft and some of the other stories by uh, Robert Bloke called... Um, well, the, the ghoul has its antecedents in all sorts of folklore. And, of course, we've talked it to death in d d but we're going to talk about the Lovecraftian ghoul. Yeah, and this is, you know, very Clark Ashton Smith was the first, the charnel god was where it got into the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah. And Pickman's model. There right? is a core difference between what the word ghoul means. Uh, you know, it, it's used in so many different uh, you know, contexts. Uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, of course, the ghoul is the undead creature that hungers for the flesh of the living, has the paralyzing touch, uh, and, you know, they travel in packs, uh, and they're not entirely mindless, but they're, you know, pretty much driven by the desire to kill and eat whatever they encounter. So they're much more like the fast zombies that we think of in the zombie culture today uh, than you know, the actual zombies of D&D, which are slow-moving, sluggish, undead servants. Now, ghoul to Clark Ashton Smith meant something entirely different. Take it away, bub. Oh, yeah, and it was also in Pigman's model that uh, Lovecraft wrote uh, the quote, The madness and monstrosity lay in the figures in for the foreground, for Pigman's morbid art was preeminently one of, the, of demonic portraiture. portraiture. Ah. These figures were seldomly completely human, but often approach humanity in a varying degree. Most of the bodies, while roughly bipedal, had a forward slumping and vaguely canine cast. The texture of the majority was a kind of unpleasant rubberiness. And there are species of cannibalistic underground humanoid dwellers on the trudge. Oh, no, no. Okay, sorry. Getting carried away here. But um, they are feral looking, and yet they are akin to human, or were once human, or perhaps near human. It's not really clear. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith writes about them, but also they appear in the Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath, which Pikmin is in fact a partial or full-blooded ghoul, and he goes to join them at the end of the story, and resides with them in the Dreamlands as a chieftain now. And so, in the Call of Cthulhu uh, rulebook, there was the paper chase, which, you know, you had to investigate a man who is becoming a ghoul, because they have many tunnels underneath cities and lands of men, where they prey on not just the living, but mostly the dead, consuming them, but they w are not incapable of eating the flesh of the living. And that's an that brings up an important distinction I would like to make about the Call of Cthulhu monsters that we are mentioning. Uh, even though we're just limiting ourselves to two, the two have a very special reason. Uh, in so much of Call of Cthulhu, the monsters are alien distant, fantastic, and incredibly terrifying and powerful. In the ones that we're mentioning today, uh, they're not as overwhelmingly powerful. However, they have a transactional kind of relationship with humanity. A human being can become a ghoul. You know, uh, a, a ghoul uh, may indeed have originally come from human stock, uh, you know, having slowly transformed. And now the society of them are you know, out there, lurking just beneath us, you know, in the shadows, waiting for lone Feeding on our dead, yep. And occasionally adding a bit of fresh meat. 
And since they don't look human at all, with cloven hooves and all this stuff, they're not one creature that you would be able to say, like, hey, that was once a human, but the transformation is monstrous, and now they live a new life, completely devoid and cast off from their old one. Which is, of course, one of the horrific values, is that Pikmin finds out that he is one of them. And that their attraction to them is not one of sinister, but more of curiosity. Like, when will you join us? Yeah. When will you turn? Yeah. We've saved some space for you. He's like, one of us. One of us. Oh, oh, oh peer pressure made manifest. Oh, <laughs> I see how this works. <laughs> hey, gaba gaba. Oh. Right on. So, and then we turn to the other famous one, which is the deep ones. Or the not-so-deep ones, in the case of some of them. <laughs> You know, the shallow ones. Yeah, the, the semi-shallow ones. Uh. <laughs> you know, they watch a lot of NASCAR, you know. <laughs> All right. I'll like win. a lot of WWF. Yeah, uh. WWE. Yeah, uh, yeah so yeah. the yeah, deep ones, sorry. of course, are the titular... Released my age there. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, um, again, this is that transactional relationship. That I'm talking about here. This is the second monster that we're mentioning for Call of Cthulhu, precisely because the creepiness is in the fact that it has a relationship with humanity. Okay, human stock mixed with Cthuloid heritage. You know, the the fusion of the distant alien and weird with the ordinary, the mundane, and the mortal. And it doesn't end well in any of those other circumstances. You know, these are two things that... This is not a Reese's Pieces moment where, like, everything is better. Wow, you know, your peanut butter got in my chocolate. Your Shithulu got in my human. This is not a happy. This is bad. Like, everything gets worse. Uh, And the Deep Ones are a perfect example of that. The old Innsmouth taint. Yeah, the Innsmouth look, as it's called. And they have a relationship with their kin on land who are developing. Eventually uh, joining them as humans begin to take more and more features, even developing gills or amphibian-like qualities, web fingers, large eyes, recessed ears. They become more and more amphibian and then eventually are joined, joined their brothers or sisters in the sea. Yeah, a slow conversion into this fish-like creature that there's a point in their lives where they can no longer pass amongst humans. Uh, and for that, that brief interim period, all they can count on is other humans who are in the process and who are in the know to help them, you know, make that final transition and go to the sea and join their brethren. Wasn't it said that life came from the sea and so shall it return? Yeah. And that is basically, that whole quote is what caused the Deep Ones. Of course, they worship mighty Cthulhu underneath the waves, asleep dreaming in far off relay, and are led by Dagon and Mother Hydra, who are their titular cult heads, which may or may not be deities or old ones in their own right, or risen to such prominence. But uh, yeah, they, they populate the sea, and they are cruel and cunning, and occasionally can be bargained with, by those on the shore for certain sacrifices for the treasures that lay under the waves because they have no use for gold. Yeah. I, you know, these are... But they know that it curries favor and gets the ones on the shore to come to them. Yeah. They can offer up wealth if you offer up, you know, both <clears throat> food 
and people to corrupt, people to transform into deep ones. Uh, so <laughs> that transactional relationship again, which is what makes it terrifying, is that in both of those circumstances, uh, here is like that corrosive alien external force that does not belong on this plane, and people volunteering to make that step into another state of existence and join themselves with something that is alien and, you know, very wrong. You know, like that, that wonderful sense that, you know, some of us are so crazed with the idea of power or secret knowledge or things like that, that will bargain away a part of ourselves that is our empathy, our humanity, and our, you know, our basic realness uh, is all, it's all trend, you know, something that we would trade off in a heartbeat. That is super creepy. Yeah, and the one thing that I find, and it's not particularly jarring, but different, is that most of, like, from the Creature of the Black Lagoon and most of the yeah. monster movies, it was always after the women. In this case, they're after the men. Oh, yeah. They do not breed with human women. No. That, Contrary to that, they require men to breed with their females to create hybrids. Yep. A totally different spin. Unlike the like classic 50s exploitation movie. Like, oh, man. You know, black, for your black lagoon creature. Yeah, I mean, you, he sees a bikini and, man, he is just popping out of the waves like that. Woohoo! Uh, no, no, that is not how the Chthuloid goes. Very different. So it is that <clears throat> it is a very unique spin on the fact that you have avatistic type creatures in the Cthulhu mythos that are relatable to human but completely alien and almost terrifying that the knowledge of them exists and that we are in some part intrinsically linked to them. Interesting indeed when you start to rack up the differences between monstrous races and humans. Yeah, and hey, borrowing that core concept and then using it to make subtle alterations to other game systems uh, just to introduce mm -hmm. that Cthulian concept uh, into whatever other type of game you're playing, you know, not a bad idea. Because you're stealing from great material, and as I have said a million times, and will continue to say, great DMs don't borrow, they steal. Hmm. And so, you know, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about Dark Conspiracy, but uh, we're running short on time because we rambled on a little too long. Oh. But uh, we did want to mention for Dark Conspiracy as well, there's a lot of good horror in there, and uh, the Bloodkin, the Bloodkin Trolls, and the Bloodkin Vampires and Minions in Dark Conspiracy, do bear a good look at, as well as one of my favorite extraterrestrials, you know, since we talk about spooky. The insectoids. Oh, jeez. Yeah, very alien, you know, which wonderfully, you know, people have an instinctive hostility to insects, but if you can imagine that on a much larger scale and how much more that would creep people out, uh, and these things that they only see you as food. Yeah, then how terrible to be captured by the insect. ETs, because they throw you in grub pits, and while the grubs are slow, you can't run forever. Yeah, 
and they eat you alive. Ah! Oh, yeah. And so they're here to eat us, yeah. And well, they are. And uh, But we would need a, a little bit longer episode, but... We've already probably worn out your eardrums, and uh, yeah, also... But it made... was fun. I mean, I love talking about the extra creepy, weird, gross monsters that, like, really didn't get a chance to cover uh, in our previous scary monsters and super creeps episodes. Uh, this this was a really entertaining break, especially around Halloween, because these are favorite critters. Yep, and, and you know you got your Jacko Bear and uh, RuneQuest, the big pumpkin bear. You know? Yes, and along with the scary hat, uh, scary cat, and the witch, uh, the the night hag. So I think we have covered some of the classical monsters inside and archetypes inside the Halloween experience. So we hope you enjoyed this, and uh, also you made your save versus the arcane eye. We'll be returning when it's ready. But you can expect no less from the feckless wastrel of gaming podcasts. <sighs> feckless wastrel. Well, no. yeah. Such verbiage. We, we have no fecks to give. Uh, behold, the field in which we grow our fecks. Oh, I see. Thou shalt see that it is empty. Oh. <laughs> All right. Uh, but yeah. Well, it was we, fun. Yeah, that was fun. We hope you enjoyed it. And, of course, if you liked what we did here, you know, you can always be a supporter on our Anchor podcast. Just sign up for that. We appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, still working on those uh, uh, cups. But uh, we're still trying to hammer out a good... Um, call sign or uh, sig- signals for us. So we'll figure it out one of these days. We're still uh, batting a couple around here. But we appreciate uh, everybody hanging in there. But don't worry, they're coming. Oh yeah, it's time. It's going to come. But again, if you like what we do here, you can go go ahead and give us a download on our uh, download the Inker app and uh, favorite us as one of your favorite podcasts. That way you can get up-to-date information when we release a new podcast before it hits the main avenues which are on facebook and of course twitter which you can get a hold of us there and let us know on the dicey screaming page on facebook but i think we've wended our way around and it's time to depart so until next week may the dice always roll in your favor we're out see ya